Welcome to the Ian Dale Political Books podcast in association with politicos.co.uk. Well, today I've got with me Zoe Williams from The Guardian. Um, you may have seen Zoe and I together on the Sky News pay-per-view from time to time where we sure we disagree on most things. I like the way you say my name as though you're already a bit cross. <laughs> oh, I, I am cross. My train was half an hour late this morning, so I'm just in the mood for you, Zoe Williams. <laughs> now, we're going to talk um, briefly about uh, two books that you've got out at the moment. One called Get It Together, Why We Deserve Better Politics, and the other one, um, which Biteback has published, The Madness of Modern Parenting. Um, let's start off with a political one. Yeah, um, okay. Interested in the subtitle, why we deserve better politics. Why do we deserve anything? Because surely it's up to us what kind of politics we get. If we don't participate, we get the politics we deserve. That's absolutely, that's exactly right, isn't it? That if we don't participate, we can, get the we politics. Agree. No, 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 but I mean, we're just, we're just looking at it from, we're looking at exactly the same problem from two completely polar, polar opposite points. You think the reason we've got these rubbishy politics we've got at the moment is because we haven't participated enough. I think that's one reason. I think that we've been like, steadily kind of edged away from participation, actually not by the right wing but by the left wing. Because if you look at what's happened to the triangulation between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, Labour historically, for kind of 20, 30 years, have been have asked their members last on everything. You know, everything that happens, they ask they take soundings from the entire country and then they ask their grassroots. So the people who kind of traditionally would have occupied that left wing space have been steadily kind of expelled by their own So, so you think that sort of in the 70s and 80s when the Labour Party conference yeah. was supreme over their policy and party members really did have a say, yeah. um, politics on the left certainly was more participatory. Well yeah, but I mean you have to ask yourself what the point of a party structure is if the members don't have any say over the policy. What is the point? Well, the Conservatives have never had any say over policy. But that's because Conservatism by nature is authoritarian, and that's, no, what, that's the way no, Conservatives, that's the way conservatives <laughs> like it. They like, they like not to be asked. Don't tell me what I like. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, if you want to participate in politics, that means something different to going along to a meeting and then having Yvette Cooper or Chipper Amuna tell you what the country wants. It means that you build your own movement and your own ideas. And if you've got a party occupying the space that you used to occupy, you know, consider that the Labour Party's roots were in the in kind of labour movements in which people worked together, drank together, married each other. They were you know, they were really they were invested politically in every but aspect of their lives. going back decades, you wouldn't say that sort of in the nineteen twenties or thirties Labour Party members necessarily ruled over policy. There would still have been a Inevitably, in any political party, there is a bit of a top-down approach. Even the Liberal Democrats, where they, they still, yeah. to an extent, the membership determine some policies. It used to be all policies. Even there, there's a top-down approach. There's a bit of a top-down, but, but there's also the element that in the kind of traditional Labour Party, the people giving those top-down orders were themselves from, the, you know, left school at 12, joined post offices, mm. came up through the trade union movement, and that was their political schooling. So even if you didn't have a complete porosity between the membership and the high command, you at least had some kind of mutual understanding. It wasn't kind of, you know, members on one side, PPE students from Oxford mm. on the other side, which I think is what it is at the moment. But the thing about it is, is that, you know, Parliament was conceived to, so that people could represent themselves to the government, and it's become the government representing itself to the people. Now, sometimes they do a really good job, and people find them really convincing. And sometimes they do a terrible job, which I think is what the Labour Party do at the moment. But irrespective of whether it's a good or a bad job, that's not what democracy was meant to be. 
interesting that it was the Tories that started this idea of open primaries and allowing people, say, not well, in their candidates mainly, who weren't necessarily Conservative Party members or even Conservatives, come to that matter. And the Labour Party has now adopted this for their leadership election. It's come back to bite them oh, in cool. a big way. Or yeah. we, we think it has. We're recording this at the beginning of September, so we don't know the result of the leadership election. I actually yet. haven't had my ballot papers yet, so I'm wondering if I've been purged. Dare I ask <laughs> how you intend to vote? Oh, I would definitely vote for Corbyn. You seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I can't a, believe you. Listen, I don't think he would. I don't think he will stay and fight the next election. Well, what's the point in voting for him, man? Because see, this is like the lemmings jumping no, off the cliff, and you're one of them. It's not a lemming situation. The point is, it's not a learning situation. The point is, firstly, you need somebody who's going to break through the consensus of the other three. Now, it's absolutely, I don't even know what their consensus is anymore. One minute Andy Burnham's pro-Tony Blair, one minute he's anti-Tony Blair, one minute Liz Kendall's billing herself as a far-left candidate, the next minute she's I don't think she's ever done that. She was, she was doing it this morning. She said something about... Anyway, I can't remember, but do you, if you read The Guardian as assiduously as I do, I you, will, you will have heard Liz Kendall <laughs> occasionally billing herself as to the left of Stalin. Okay. Um, Yvette Cooper give it, putting out, you know, did you read the column in which she gave a kind of totally Blairite line, con which mainly consisted of, as I have always said, followed by a statement that she's never said. As I have always said, we need to fight austerity. When did she ever say that? As I have always said. We need a better, fairer, more equal society. Well, well, often they do say that, but it doesn't mean anything if you haven't got any ideas. Now, Corbyn, I really have massive problems with. My problems with him are probably bigger than yours. Um, you think you just think he's a loony. I think he's, he's a nice loony. You think he's a nice loony. Yeah. I think he's a lovely guy, full of love. I do not think his. I, I don't think he's being 21st century enough, and it's really, really problematic if you get somebody with a kind of radical capture who's not prepared to be radical in a modern way, if they just want to be radical in a 70s way. Now, I might be wrong, and he might... Crack so how can you vote for him, then? Surely well, no, one no, of the other three you, has to have something no, about them. The other three are absolutely... They're everything I hate about politics. I'm sure they're nice people, but I know they're nice people. But they are everything I hate, which is, namely, you know, a complete lack of values, a, 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 a desperate search for power before anything, quite a kind of plaintive, petulant, you can't ask for these radical things because that will lock us out of power, as though power were more, expect were more important than actually changing society for the better. Well, you can't change society if you're not in power. Well, yeah, but if you don't have any plan to change society, then what's the point of being in power? Well, they would argue that when they were in government, they did a lot of things so that what? did change society. Yeah, for the worst. Well, <laughs> well, they would argue things like minimum wage. That, that wouldn't have happened without a Labour government. Yeah, of course. But minimum so over the next 10 or 20 years, what you're voting for now is for Labour to stay out of power for the next 10 well, or 20 is, years, and so they can't do... No, I no, mean, no, fine, no. if that's what you no, want no, to no, do. No. What I'm voting for now is changing the conversation about what you want the future to look like. So the minimum wage, you're absolutely right, and that was the most popular thing, and all the kind of Peter Kellner stuff says that's the most popular thing the Labour Party ever did. And they did it in the face of businesses saying, we're all going to go out of business mm. and you're going to drag us into a socialist state. They did it in the face of conservative saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, and I was one you know, of And you were one of them. And, and I was wrong. But the truth of it was that the minimum wage kept so little pace with the living wage that it, it ended up being a kind of floor to keep people's wages down. And when it turned out that people couldn't live on those wages, the answer of the Labour Party was to subsidise them with work in work tax credit. Now, that is not a system that represents either equality or progressiveness or 
modernity, that is a, that is basically an 18th century subsidisation of wheat. But how on earth does voting for Jeremy Corbyn achieve anything? Well, what you do is you change the conversation about what's possible and what isn't possible. And then, if he wants to, you know, imagine there is a split in the Labour Party and the Labour Party ejects him and he, and I think that that would be a pacification. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Just as the centre-left in Greece basically committed suicide when, when Syriza came along, I think if they did try and eject him, that would be the Labour Party committing suicide. I just don't think you can possibly look at a guy who's getting... Well, hang on a when, when we started talking, mm. you said, oh, he wouldn't be in power at the next election. Oh, no, I think he's going to probably... I think he's probably just going to kind of drag conversation to a different place and then and then succeed to someone else. I mean, I know he can't anoint anybody else, but I think there, there are kind of certainly... There are certainly rumours from his camp and elsewhere that he wouldn't want to fight as the leader of the opposition in 2020. Well, I think that's a fair point. When I interviewed him um, in the debate that I did, Getting him to say, I want to be Prime Minister, was like getting blood out of a yeah, stone. Yeah, yeah, and others yeah. have had the same experience with it. And actually, you think, well, if you don't want to do that, why would you run in the first place? Well, because, precisely because there's nobody else putting anything different on the agenda. And seriously, a Labour Party that is too scared to challenge Conservative more is, if you like, <laughs> um, is, is going to die. But, it, but if he voluntarily stepped down, so yeah. after three years, what you'll then have is another candidate like Jeremy Corbyn, say Diane Abbott standing no. as leader of the Labour Party, and you'd have the same electorate, and they'd elect Diane Abbott as leader. Well, she would be equally as toxic. It wouldn't be Diane Abbott because it would. I mean, I don't think you know. Probably you don't know the really, really talented, quite radical, quite modern people that there are in the Labour Party well, like who have started to get a little bit of notice at the end of Midlands, like Lisa Nandy. Alison McGovern I have a huge amount of time for. I mean, they're young and they don't have, and you know, it would take some balls to stand for leader with the experience that they have, especially Alison McGovern. Um, but Lisa Nandy has a lot of experience, actually. She was in the shadow of cabinet as children's minister. Um, you know, if, if one of those would be a completely, completely different proposition. Nobody would look at Lisa Nandy and say, oh, she's a 70s war horse, and they would, and they would then find themselves able to listen to what she would actually say. But you know, I, to go back to the point, there are things, there's a huge, a huge amount missing from the way he talks. Did, did you see that Chris Giles piece in the FT? But it was, it was, it was really, really good. Um, but it was, I mean, I, dis, I disagree with Chris Giles really profoundly, but he was saying there are credible left-wing arguments you can make about the economy, and they, they, revolve, they resolve around, you know, inheritance tax, property prices, all kinds of ways to in, to kind of pull levers in with and, and make people more equal, and he's not saying that he's basically relying on this huge amount this, on the tax cap. Now, I don't think relying on the tax cap is a, is either a hopeful or a, or a credible program. But I, that doesn't mean that but he won't change. All that you're saying indicates that you think the Labour Party ought to fight on a much more left-wing platform yeah. than it has done in the last few elections. Mm -hmm. But. Any historian will tell you that the Labour Party has never won an election from that position. No, this is not what history tells us, and it's not actually what analysis tells us. When you look at the kind of sophology around European of European left-wing parties going, moving to the right in order to win elections, they do fine for 15 years, but they don't actually do fine on a kind of straight line for 15 years. They do well in the first instance, 
they tail off and nobody really notices they're tailing off because they're so surprised that they've won another election. Yes. And they move further and further to the right, and then they die. I mean, this has happened to the German left wing, it's happened to the Greek left wing, it's happened to the Spanish left wing. But when in this, when in this country has Labour ever won an election with a... I mean, 1945, you could make an argument for that, but mm. that, that was sort of a unique circumstance. I'm not sure you can even count that. It's never done it any other year. I mean, it depends. It, it's really interesting, isn't it? I wouldn't ever look at... You're kind of pr taking the presumption, I guess, that we are an inherently conservative nation. I think we are an inherently centre-right nation. Right, okay, so conservative I with a small c rather than a large c. And, and I don't think, sort of, uh, when you look at the way people live their lives nowadays, mm. I just don't think the British people would vote for a left-wing platform. Well, see, I think, contra-wise, I think that the actual, what counts as right-wing and left-wing has changed immeasurably yeah. over the past 20 years. I mean, unbelievably. I can't, I, I can hardly fathom the kind of things that I'm having to defend as hard left, which 10 years ago would have been just common sense. Um, and so I don't, th I think what we've got is a politics which is actually moving quite a long way to the right and people are following it because they're not being given any kind of alternative way of framing the political situation. But I think if you look at the situation of being 30, of being 25 now, you come out of university, okay, 23, okay. You come out of university, you're in 50 grand's worth of debt, which is quite significant. And everybody always says, well, you'd have to pay it till you start earning. But that doesn't mean that it's not money, it's still money. Um, you, the chances of you buying a house before your 40s are extremely slim. So you're looking at at least a decade. But no one on the left has come up with any solutions. Okay, so hang on a second, I'm just describing the world from that point of view. The likelihood is that you're going to be asked to work for free for a while. You're going to be living very, very different lives to the life I lived when I was 22, 23. Let's not go there. <laughs> probably in some respects it will be similar, but it won't be financially similar. Your, the difference between your life and my life will be roughly the same as like, the difference between middle class in Lagos and middle class in London. So even though the kind of educational facets will be the same, there'll be a lot of kind of social character which is the same, you, you're, le you're leading very different financial lives. And I don't think, when you look at, when you look at that person who's 22 and say, oh, well, you just, you, you want, you're a kind of basically conservative with a small c person, you want things to, you want the status quo to remain the same, I think they would say, A, no, I'm not, because it doesn't suit me, and B, the problem with the status quo is that it's not static, it's always getting worse, it's always getting worse for some people, and at the moment it's getting worse for quite a few people. Well, I think you're right to the extent that um, if home ownership is our dream, and that's what we're always taught that it ought to be, then people in their 20s have a very different scenario from is that, from that, from that, that you and I do. I mean, you, I mean, you know, this people on The Economist will say this to me as well. It's not really the point about whether home ownership is this kind of little England that I want some geraniums. The point is, if you're renting for your entire adult life, which many people will be, you don't have very much power. You don't have very much power of your own destiny. You know, you can be evicted at any time. You can have a revenge eviction. You don't know where you're going to raise your children. You don't know if you'll be able to afford your rent in two years. You don't know where you can send your children to school. You have, there's a huge amount that you can't do. So it's not really about whether or but not it's your own drone you're pouring money like down. Even, even, if you're, even if you're right. Well, I am right. It, <laughs> you, always, you always think you're right. Even if you're right, no, 
there's no nobody on the left is offering a, a different agenda. Well, there. The, the, I mean, this and I really like it when the argument co comes to here because actually, what we de we definitely don't need somebody to come out and say I've got all the answers, even though I actually do think I've got all the answers. Well, what we okay, need is for answers, everybody to what say. What you should do then yeah. is stand for election and try people, and become prime minister. People keep saying this to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, you're, you're the Just, same as Owen Jones. I know. You're I know. a commentator. I, there's no not, responsibility I'm for not anything. The same as Owen Jones. What? Okay, politically, not not quite. Are you getting there? I think. I'm not getting. How dare you? Why is it that really like commentators it. like you, like me to an extent, like we, we, we sit there pontificating and say oh, we've got all the answers here, and yet very few people ever stand to for election to get their ideas implemented? Well, Michael like, Gove did. Okay, I did and failed. Oh yeah, no, that's you've nice. never even I like, tried. I like story. Okay, but listen, just to, just to go back to the all the answers question, we don't need somebody with all the answers. What we need is a very broad based well, conversation be nice. between people who. We, we need a broad conversation about what we want society to look like, right? And that doesn't need, that cannot come from, you know, replacing one load of middle class white people with another load of middle class white people. It has to be participatory on a very broad level. And I, I could say to you, I know exactly what to do about housing right now, but it would be meaningless unless I asked you know, the other people in my borough, what they wanted to do about housing, and the other people in London, and the people outside But the London. problem is that most people, if you ask them, ha a, a, haven't got a clue, and mm. B, aren't particularly interested. People are so interested. Well, people not, are, not everyone. Mm. Okay, if, if people were really interested, mm. we'd have a turnout in elections of 90%. Um, most people can't be bothered to get off their asses to go to a meet to okay. any consultative Look, meeting. I can't be bothered to go to a consultative meeting because the consultative meetings are meaningless. They are they consult with people and then they do not put exactly, those consultations. Exactly, people don't trust that word because no. they always think well, yeah, exactly, that I mean, for hospital closure, there's a consultation. Yeah, yeah. Yet we all know that the bureaucrats have made their decision before the consultation well, exactly, starts. Right, but for some reason, you managed to put that back on the people who didn't turn up to the meeting. When actually, the point is exactly as you just said. The bureaucrats have already made their decision and the consultation is meaningless. When you say, if we really cared, we would have 90% turnout, that is not true. The reason people don't turn out is because they don't hear anybody saying, I'm going to do something really different. If, they, if somebody stood up and said, look, I am genuinely going to change the way housing is financed and bought and sold in this country, well, then people would vote for is, that. Is that, yeah. the way, is that the reason you think that UKIP got 3.8 million votes? Because they That's did. Well, I mean, forget what you think of their policies. Yeah. They, Farage in particular, has stood up and said, look, I'm not like the others. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, Farage is a bit of a line, isn't it? He always, he's always standing up saying, I'm not like the others, I'm completely authentic, and he's no more authentic than anybody else. And I hate that authenticity stuff because it's, it's stupid. You know, the whole idea that Boris Johnson is as he seems and is, you know, what you see is what you get. It's ridiculous. It's but just the, another line. But the thing is, <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> I mean, I mean, with Boris, who I'm not a massive fan of, I have mm. to say, that what you see is what you get. That he is like in private, exactly what he's yeah, like. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that he's 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 not capable of exactly the same duplicity and machination and spin. Everyone, but yeah. everyone's capable. Of it. You're never well, yeah. going to get a politician, um, even someone like Farage or whoever, who is going to come in and be the sort of knight on the on, on the white horse. Exactly. It doesn't work like exactly. that. Everybody so will have their faults. Everybody will have their ego, their narcissism, because that is partly, I'm afraid, what politics is all about. I'm not asking them to be perfect, and I'm not asking them not to have any narcissism. I'm saying that if you actually stand on a ticket of complete transparency and authenticity, then you're no more transparent or authentic than anybody else, so then that's kind of silly. But anyway, it doesn't matter. That, that's irrelevant. The point about Nigel Farage is not just that he was standing as an authentic person. He was also standing as a person who said, I could genuinely make a difference. I could make a difference to the way you're paid, how much you're paid, and mm. where you live. 
And obviously his solution is a stupid one. You know, blaming immigrants for the housing crisis is ridiculous. Blaming immigrants for the wages for wages when well, you should you, be blaming employers you, is you, also you say, ridiculous. You say that. Yeah, I do. Say but that. I mean, on the face of it, if you have three hundred and thirty thousand people net coming into the country within a twelve-month period, and there aren't the houses to house them, well, that that has made the housing crisis worse, hasn't it? I mean, it depends what you're. It depends what you mean, really. Well, it, I just said what I mean. I mean, if you haven't got the extra housing, it's going to put more pressure no. on these housing stock for people who are already here, the isn't it? Is, it's it's there logical. Has never, there has never been there have, ne there have never been more rooms per capita than there are in London. Oh, no, in the UK at the moment, we don't have a shortage of space. We have a we have a paucity of distribution. So what we've got is widening inequality has meant that some people can live in very ample space and some people are living in very overcrowded space mm. and but that's privatization always, that's always been the case. no it hasn't yes, actually it it's getting worse and worse and no, privatization of housing stock that at all. no you, 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 you would have you would have had you would have had in the 20s and 30s three families living in a house oh yeah no, you don't no, get that oh now. yeah no there were oh look, did you read that oh no I'll ask that. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is Okay, you, we, let's let's just leave that as a disputed fact. Even though if you read in, if you read all of it, solid by Danny Dorling, which you really should, it's brilliant. But, but um, well, no, well, let's not leave it because you you're arguing. Well, if there was a fairer distribution of the space, no, 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 not entirely. That's not entirely. Then probably. then it would solve the problem. Yeah. I mean, I own two houses. I yeah. live I, I live one in one during the week and the other one at weekends. Yeah. Now I've chosen to spend money that I've earned in that way. I know, but you are contributing to a situation. Yeah, I know. Which but, but what do you do about it? Do you say to me, "Well, actually, only going to allow you to own one house"? No, I would probably just tax the hell out of your second home. That's so that the, that is the left-wing solution to everything. Tax the hell out of it, and everything will be all right. No. People won't vote for that. Well, that's fine. Maybe people with two houses won't vote for it, and maybe people with no houses no. who are having to leave the area that they grew up in because they can't afford no, to live there. You see, will that's why you have a fundamental misunderstanding of the British psyche. No, you, you see, don't no, understand no, no, aspiration no, 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 because people people were against the mansion tax yeah. not because they would have to pay it. But they, they would have quite liked to have been in a position to pay it. Fine, fine. But you don't understand the British psyche at all because people <laughs> aren't stupid. Nobody is going to look at a person with two houses and look at their own situation. Say you were brought up in Norfolk and you've, you've got a, you're working in the rural economy and you haven't got a hope in hell of ever owning anything and you're actually going to either have to live with your parents for your entire life or you're going to have to leave the work that you do and move somewhere and move into King's Lynn and work in... Argos. No one will wish that on anyone. Um, exactly, no one will wish that on anyone. If you're that person, you're not looking at you and thinking, I'm really glad he's got two houses, I want to be more like him. You're thinking, this is a stupid situation no. in which some people are making other people's lives worse. I don't agree at all. Well, that's fine, but you don't have to agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if, if the only solution on the left is to effectively penalise people. No, 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 but th that's not the only solution. That's, that's not going you're to asking, You're asking me for a solution to people who need two houses for their sense of self. Now, I'm saying my, solution, your, your to solution, that, my solution to that would be to disincentivise those people but and ask them instead to make decisions well, on no, a more There already is a disincentive way. because you're already taxed more anyway. Well, okay, but I'd tax you but more to disincentivise exactly. it more. But also, but look, really, at, look at the NHS. Your so part of your solution to that would presumably be to spend more money on it, by which you mean tax people more actually, or borrow more? Actually, no. The first solution to the NHS is to go back to the PFI contracts and see if, they, and see if they've got a legal basis. Because well, if they you said you have, otherwise they wouldn't be well, there. Well, no, either. they actually have. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of work to suggest that they were, they were rotten from the inside out. And you can talk to stockbrokers. I, I don't, stock I don't disagree with that. Well, no, but I mean, even if you don't disagree, 
instead of just saying what a shame that this happened, there is a, a real, real case to be made for challenging them at the kind of granular level. And because that's really what's what's stuffing a lot of foundation hospitals. That would have happened by now if it was possible. This is your answer to everything. Is if you <laughs> if that's such a good idea, why hasn't somebody well, already exactly. done it? Exactly. Well, and PFI is not a new thing. It's been around for people, twenty years. I know, but people are only just starting now to realise how bad it is. I mean, there were these two Scottish economists who did the numbers on one contract in Scot on a Scottish hospital. I can't remember which one, and they found that a one thousand pound equity stake had yielded 50 million back to the original private investors. Now, they're, they're, they're well, rotten from the inside no, out. I, look, you and I aren't going to disagree on that. I think there was a huge amount wrong with yeah. um, PFI. But of course, a lot of the new hospitals that we've had over the last 20 years would not have existed without PFI. And, and the only way they could have well, the well, existed is yeah, for the government, the government to spend much spent, more money on no, no, and tax people spent, more. The government would have spent a, governments do not have... You think it's cheaper to borrow from PFI? Of course no, it isn't. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. So you think... I, mean, I, think, I don't understand the logic of what you're saying. If it's more expensive because, to do it by PFI, what, then surely that has co cost us what more. What PFI and was all about was putting something on tick. And we yeah, all yeah, know yeah, that yeah, if you put something on tick, you're going to get wandered for it, well, basically. Exactly. So we got wandered so as happened. taxpayers. But but the, from a political point of view, the reason PFI came in under John Major and then was massively yeah. expanded under Blair and Brown mm. was because they wanted to show the British public that they were building all these new hospitals and they wouldn't have been able to do that without PFI. Yeah, they would. How? Of course they would. They would have actually just done it from government spending. No, because they hadn't got the money to do that. Of course you can. You just, you just borrow well, to invest. Nobody, well, nobody there borrows. There we go again. Listen, do you not think we've had enough borrowing? Ian, listen to yourself. You're saying, you're literally saying to me, it's better to borrow at ridiculous rates no, that cost you more in I, the I'm long not, run. No, I'm not saying that at all. Than I'm, it is I'm to saying borrow as that you live within your means and you spend according to your means. I know, but we haven't done that. I know, but you're but you're saying, <laughs> okay, we think PFI is a really bad thing, but we would have borrowed the same amount of money anyway. We wouldn't have borrowed the same amount of money if you're if you're borrow, if you're building a hospital for twelve million pounds and you're paying back one hundred and twenty-seven billion, then. That's a, that represents a no, greater cost to the yes, taxpayer, right? But to an accountant or to a politician, it doesn't matter because that's 10, 20 well, years ahead when I'm not in office. I don't care about but that. But then all you're saying is that politicians are stupid, which is my point in the first place. No, they're actually very clever to do it because they took all the political gain from the new hospitals without any of the political pain. And the political pain is now starting to hit. Well, I just don't... I, I don't know what the point of your analysis is. I mean, we agree that PFI was pointless. We agree that it was a rip-off. We agree that it was storing up a huge amount of costs for the taxpayer but then you won't say it would have been better for the government to simply borrow that money as a government no, governments because borrow we, money we, really cheaply it, indeed but there comes a time and we've already reached that time when, when, borrow, when bor borrowing gets too much yeah sure but we why have we reached it because we've borrowed from the wrong source we borrowed we, we've shifted all the borrowing onto the private sector and now we're paying through the nose if we'd done it ourselves we would have paid it off by now well We'll never know, will we? Well, look, I know. I actually do know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, come on. Right. Okay. Are you th actually thinking about standing at the next no, election? No, 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 I wouldn't. Why? Um, uh, I think it's, it's, it is very, it's very compromising work, right? You know, you can't... Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, po the point is, if people who clearly are quite clever and, and would actually be quite good at this sort of thing don't stand, then you are going to get Labour leadership elections full of ex-special advisers yeah. who, I mean, as you say, nice people, competent in a way, but not very inspirational, 
Um, I mean, you think back to 1976, yeah, yeah, yeah. the people who took part in that leadership election, where you had Callaghan, Foote, yeah. Healy, Ben, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. Crossland, Jenkins. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, yeah, it's, amazing. I know it's it's always saying you always sound like an old git when you have to go back thirty or forty years. Yeah. So oh, it's not quite not like it used to be, is it? But there is a point to that. Yeah, sure. But the point I mean, the point I would make is that part of the problem is that you know the, the homogeneity of class and race and type, and I wouldn't be contributing to that by standing. Be a woman. <laughs> I mean, I'd be a woman, I guess. I'd be a kind. I'd be a kind of woman. But kind I mean, of woman. I would, I would like to see. I would just like to see a much kind of broader Labour Party made up of people who live in the country. And I don't think that me standing would further that. Um, but yeah, no, there is a point. There, you you have got a point. If I, you know, there is a point about putting your money where your mouth is. The problem with being a politician is you're constantly a salesperson, right? Yeah. You're constantly trying to have, and I and I think it it kind of denatures your human interaction. Well, the problem, part of the problem with politics nowadays is if you aren't good on television or the media, you're never going to get anywhere. No, 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 so if you think back to sort of, I mean, at, the common one is Attlee. Attlee would never have got mm. to the top in politics nowadays because he would have been useless on the 24-hour media. So you therefore um, are full of people like Chukka Ramuna, yeah, yeah. who is very good on the media. I mean, I actually think he is quite good generally, but I mean, like... I don't know if you heard in this morning on the Today programme doing a reverse ferret on supporting yeah, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, that is what people hate about yeah, politics. Yeah, exactly. And you think that's a good thing? No, I don't think it's a good thing. I was really disappointed when I heard him say that. It's ridiculous. Because, I mean, if you I if mean, you're I remember him on Newsnight, literally, it was three, it was four weeks ago, yeah. sneering know, his head off at Jeremy Corbyn. Sneering his head off. And absolutely, oh, everybody knows that the Labour Party is this and means this and appeals to people for this reason. No, not everybody knows that. I mean, you know, I guess I should be pleased. I should be pleased that he's had to backtrack. No, because people think it's done for his own advantage. Which I think it is. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and that's, why, yeah, that's yeah. why people don't like it. Yeah. And do you realise we've been talking for half an hour? Oh, wow, we that haven't, is quite we haven't even talked about your other book. Oh, yet. God, the, the other book, I forgot about the other book. Do you the do other two minutes on that. The other book's doing way better. <laughs> <laughs> the Madness of people, Modern Parenting, what do you mean by that? People like the other book. Um, I think every, I think we've got into this kind of hyper risk culture where everything where everything is a risk to the child and every parent has to be on red alert for every possible harm to their progeny, even if it's just the harm yeah. of being traumatised by an advert. And I think we're kind of losing our robustness and we're losing and children are losing their freedom appallingly. Um, you know, all the research that you see about how far a child has walked on its own by the age of 10, how far, how long it's spent on, in a house on its own. You're not even allowed to leave children in the house on their own, I realise. But, you know, all the kind of, fr all the natural freedoms that we'd involve in kind of growing up and being resilient are being kind of eroded by this neurotic kind of parental perfection, which kind of starts preconception. But how has this happened? Is it sort of, combination of the, the old cliches the nanny state gone mm. mad and also health and safety gone mad yeah, I think yeah, those yeah. two those two have contributed haven't yeah, they yeah yeah well this is really interesting isn't it the, the, I think they're kind of left and right really co really comes together mm. on this that we we all hate that kind of prissy hyper vigilant thing that the direction that culture's going in and there's a the, in, the most interesting 
study that came out for me was the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists brought something out two years ago which said pregnant women shouldn't sit on new furniture or use new flying pads. <laughs> and it was completely preposterous. The line was there's a particular chemical involved in those processes. They said, we don't know whether it's damaging to your fetus or not, but if you're in doubt, you keep away from these things. Now, it's firstly, it suggests a completely supine medical establishment that just rolls along with the risk culture. They know they don't, and individual doctors will challenge this risk culture, but en masse they won't. I don't know why not, I think they're quite a conservative breed, um, but they just won't challenge the prevailing culture. Secondly, there's a kind of corporate element to that, which is that if you really think that a chemical is damaging a baby, you go to the people who are making the chemicals, and there's a kind of reframing of personal responsibility so that everything is your responsibility you know you have a child with a disability that was your fault you have a child who's got asthma that's mm -hmm. your fault and I think it's a way it's a, it's a way in which corporations are allowed to get away with you know basically polluting and poisoning people do, do you sort of look at this partly through the experience of your own childhood um, I mean I, I look back on mm -hmm. mine yeah, and I think I had a perfect childhood I, I grew up on a farm I mean, health and safety, shall we put it, was not a high priority for my father. <laughs> I was driving a combine harvester at the age of eight. Were you? Yeah, on my own, oh, that's unsu really cute. unsupervised. <laughs> we, we would um, uh, sort of when, when the corn went back to the farm with the, uh, on the trailer, mm. you would have eight kids from the village sitting on top of the corn on the trailer, going on the road. My dad would be arrested and put in prison yeah, for that yeah, nowadays. Yeah, yeah. And yet, that contributed to the fact that they all had a fantastic childhood mm, too. Mm, mm, mm. That's all gone now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think. It's very difficult to be the only free-range parent. Stubble burning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, you'd love that. Yeah, I really would. I can imagine you were a bit of a tomboy. Bit of a tomboy. <laughs> but I was in London, but I went to... I used to go on buses on my own at yeah. the age of eight. I mean, probably not that often, but I wasn't... It wasn't verboten, you know. I could... I remember me and my sister went to Putney, and we were about 10 and 11, and we dropped all our money down a grate, and we couldn't get home without it. And so we went into a cafe and we stole a spoon and we tied it to a stick <laughs> and we bent the spoon down and got the bunny back out. Now that, can you imagine? Just learned so much from that. But do you think there's also this fear now of a paedophile around every corner? Yeah, I have. I've nowhere proving this at all. But I actually don't think that paedophilia is any more common in our society now than it was no. 40 years ago. It's just that no one ever talked about it. No one ever knew about it. You knew that there were people that did it, but it wasn't really ever talked about. I think the problem with paedophilia is that people is that the kind of stories that come out make you feel like Jesus. Everybody is like this, mm. you know, because it's never one public school. It's 150 public schools. It's never one Catholic church. It's 150 mm. Catholic churches. It's never one Asian grooming gang. It's 17 Asian grooming gangs. And I use those saliently to say it is across all races and religions, but it is it does it does um, concentrate. And then you start to freak out because you're like, this, what is wrong with people? Actually, of course, as we all know, paedophiles are predatory. So they, they, they go to places where they know that children mm. are unsupervised, like public schools, and they don't, and, and, and they prey on them. So I think you're right. I don't think the idea of like there being a paedophile in a park just waiting for a kid to go past, I think it's preposterous. But you know, I think now as ever, as in Dickensian times, as in the 13th century, children whose parents aren't around can meet some nasty people. In a way, it's all 
symptomatic of the fact that we have become an incredibly risk-averse yeah, yeah, society. Yeah. But would you think we've, we've become risk-averse generally, like in any Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's an easy thing to say, but I think it is partly the media that's to blame for this, in that we, we're constantly bombarded mm. with television programmes about pedos, all the news is about pedos, all sort of health and safety or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. and therefore naturally, and it's not a sort of, it's not a process where you even notice it, I'm, I, I think sort of I've probably become a lot more risk averse as I've yeah, got yeah, older. Yeah. I, I don't think it's just sort of down to parents or, or children. No, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And you know, you can look at the same, you can observe the same patterns in the way health is discussed. You know, this is damaging to your health, that's damaging to your health. I think because we're kind of agreed on the fact now that children are the most precious thing in the world, a lot of the apart kind of. Apart from dogs. Apart from, obviously, it goes without saying. Hmm. A lot of the. Um, a lot of the narrative around risk concentrates there because it's, very, it's a very easy case to make. But I don't think it's a natural case and I don't think it's any good for them. Give me three books that you would recommend to others or so have been reading. I've been reading um, Paul Mason's Post-Capitalism. Not really? Have you read it? No. Oh, it's super no good. It's super, super good. You should, you should open your mind, man. Um, <laughs> I just don't like reading books. Like, it's not a good, I mean, Paul Mason, I think, is actually a really good um, reporter, but... Mm. I don't want to read books about economics. Oh, it's not really about economics. Well, it is about economics, but it's about economics in the broadest possible sense. So we, it hasn't got any graphs in it. Um, but one that has got a lot of graphs, which which I'm also reading, is Wolfgang Streeck's um, The Crisis of Capitalist Democracy, is it called? Oh. It's, that's really, really good. Um, he's, he's, he's and, any enjoyable books? These are really... Do they have to be political? Are they going to be no, enjoyable? be anything. Um, I read this amazing book recently called The Death of Grass by John Christopher. Have you read it? No. It was like in the 70s. It was like, do you, do you like John Wyndham? No. You don't like Triffids? You must like Triffids. Everybody likes Triffids. I've watched the Triffids, but I've never read the Oh, Triffids. well, it's like there was a real phase in the 70s of people like doing these kind of elaborate post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Well, I love, I actually love, my partner hates watching films that I like because I love mm. apocalyptic films, Independence Day, yeah, San yeah, Andreas, yeah. stuff like that, I love. I know, so if you're into that, you would love right, this, okay. you would love this book, it's really, really amazing. And it's very, I don't know, it's, it's kind of quite, it makes you quite, feel quite nostalgic. So I should abandon the biography of Roy Jenkins that I'm reading at the moment. I mean, I would. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Is it really good? Yeah, I learned a lot about it that I didn't know before. Mm. Whether I needed to know it, I'm, I'm not, not a sure. big biography person. That's, that's all. I, I, I really only read political biographies and football biographies. Really? That's, but I don't read any novels at all. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> it's just, I know, it's just what I have. No, really, yeah, men are very good. Last we've gone off 40 minutes Oh now. God, yeah. I think we'd better finish. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I can't stop talking. Well, uh, Zoe's books, Get It Together, Why We Deserve Better Politics and The Madness of Modern Parenting, they are both available at politicos.co.uk.